Thank you, Patrick. And thank you to all of y'all. So many of y'all have mentioned to me directly how you pray for your elders. And I know there's a lot of y'all that haven't told me that, but do. And we appreciate that very much. There's, there's nothing more you could do for us that would accomplish more and that would mean more to us uh, than that. And uh, it crossed my mind this afternoon that the worst job you think we're doing, the more you need to be praying for. So I'm going to put it on you. Last week, Richard, I already told Richard this. Richard, you went 34 minutes and 56 seconds last week. I want to try not to break that record. Uh, in fact, my second favorite Bible verse, that's right, my second favorite Bible verse is Ecclesiastes 6.11. The more the words, the less the meaning, and how can that profit anyone? So the wise man said that. Before I get to my uh, remarks this evening, I want to give a commercial for next week. Next week we're going to the garden, and uh, a lot of people look at this as a, as a very a difficult time because they think, man, that's, that's not me. I'm not a gardener. I'm not one that can do that. I'm physically incapable of getting out of that for lots of different reasons. Let me encourage you to go so you can be an encouragement to those that are there. When I go work in my backyard, Jill will come out there from time to time uh, just to watch. Just to say, how you doing, dear? And, wow, you really got that looking good. And every once in a while she comes out, I'll want to show her something. I'll want to brag, hey, look what I, you know. She's an encouragement to me out there just being there. When we go to Bywaters Park and she sketches the crepe myrtles, I go with her, not because I can't find something better to do. But to her, it's an encouragement for me to be there. She'll want to stop from time to time and say, well, does this really look right? Of course, I'm like, yeah, it looks great, you know. Uh, I don't know anything about art, but just me being there is an encouragement to her to keep her on in that. So let me ask you all, if gardening, if working out in the sun is not your deal, I understand that. Let me encourage you to bring a lawn chair, bring an umbrella, bring some bug spray maybe, and just sit there and encourage those that are working. I know lots of times we have times when a, a young man will be up here, like me, uh, talking, and we'll say, let's go and encourage that kid. You'll show him some support. So I'm asking you, if you can't do anything more than sit there in that lawn chair and give those folks some support, it would mean a lot to them. And I want to throw this out. If 10 or more can show up in the lawn chair, I'll lead singing, and we'll just sing to them while they're gardening, okay? Throwing that out there. All right, that does not go in my 34 minutes and 56 seconds, by the way. John, thank you. I meant to see you before. Thank you very much, brother. It's been said that some men are born great. Some men aspire to greatness. Some men have greatness thrust upon them. I want to talk to you about a man this evening on which you decide which category you think he belongs in. Now we're told that when, as he was growing up, he was raised in great luxury and in a house of great power. He could want for nothing. And then as far as training and education, he was given the, the best education that not only his country could afford, but probably the best education you could get in the world at that time. 
So the early resume of this man certainly pointed towards greatness. But if we turn the calendar forward a few decades, when he gets to the last third of his life, his resume isn't all that impressive. Basically, he's a rancher. It's not even his ranch. It's his father-in-law's ranch. He married well. I guess he, that's one thing for him. Fell in love, had a couple kids, and there he is, working the animals. And, you know, it's an honorable occupation, but it doesn't smack of the greatness that we kind of saw of this man when he was growing up. But all that would change for him one day. He's out there watching over the animals, and he sees something he's never seen before. And he approaches to investigate, and what he sees is a bush that's on fire, but it's not consumed by the fire. And a voice calls out to him and tells him to take off his shoes. Because he's standing on holy ground. Now, when I was a kid, I really was a kid once, and I'd hear this story, what always went through my mind was mom yelling at us through the back door, take your shoes off before you come in, you're going to track mud all over my carpet. Or I just mopped the kitchen floor. So I was like, okay, you know, got to be careful, don't mess up mom's house. In this story, <clears throat> to me, why is this holy ground? There was nothing particularly special about the ground itself, just another little patch of desert. Well, what made that ground holy was who was there. Where's your holy place? Is it a mountaintop somewhere? Is it at the edge of a lake? Is it in a swing on your back porch? Is it this room? Where do you go and meet with God? My favorite verse, Psalm 42, 2. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? Where do you go to meet with God? Lots of places you could go. Let me suggest the next time you go there, take off your shoes. All right, so God calls out to Moses, I've heard the cries of my children back in Egypt, and I want you to go back and lead them out. I think of the Uncle Sam poster from the war days, you know? I want you. So how is Moses going to respond? Up to this point, it's been a pretty quiet life. No big ups, no big downs. You know, how stressful can a life of a shepherd out in the middle of the desert be, really? And it's his dad's, his father-in-law's place, so, you know, if they die, they're his animals. He's already married, so he can't fire him, I don't think. So life has been pretty easy for Moses. Why would he want to take on this challenge. Why upset the apple cart of his nice, simple, content life? 
Moses offers up what I counted three objections. Moses says, I feel so unworthy. I feel so inadequate. Lord, why me? Of all the people, why choose me to do this? But eventually Moses relents. Moses submits to God's will. And he goes back to Egypt. And the first thing he has to do when he gets back to Egypt is to tell the people that God sent him to lead that God sent him to lead. And if you remember, the last time he was in Egypt, the last documented conversation we have is he's trying to settle a dispute between two Hebrew brothers. And one of them turns to him and says, Who are you? Who made you leader over us? Well, it took 40 years, but he's got an answer for it. I probably should know, but a few years back, I was living a quiet, simple life. Not a lot of ups and downs, pretty steady, you know, got my wife and family, carrying on my occupation, serving God in whatever way I found to do it. And then God called me. God speaking through his people, speaking through you guys approached me and said, we want you to be one of our leaders. And just like Moses, I could have given you lots of objections, feelings of unworthiness, feelings of inadequacy, feelings of, why me? Of all the people, why would you choose me to be one of your leaders? But I relented. I submitted to what I believe was God's will speaking through his people. And I accepted the challenge. Back to Egypt. Moses' first official task as leader was to go to Pharaoh and ask for a three-day weekend so they could go out in the desert and worship God. The way I got it figured he couldn't have got them all out in the desert in three days. Pharaoh's response is not simply no, but <coughs> no. He says, I'll tell you what, Moses, you all can go back to making bricks, and since you've got so much spare time in your hand, you can gather your own straw while you're at it. Moses' first action as a leader how long was that walk from Pharaoh's palace back to Goshen? Oh, boy. And I just know when he got there, there was, a, there was a guy, the first guy he saw, probably said, hey, Moses had to go with Pharaoh. What'd he say? You know. Uh, gather, gather up the folks. I've got, some, uh, I've got some bad news and I've got some worse news. Now, I don't know if the Washington Post and New York Times did polls back then, but Moses' popularity rating before he went to go see Pharaoh 
And when he came back with the news, I can only imagine how they responded. Really? Thanks a lot, Moses. Appreciate it. What a great leader you are. I can't wait to see what you do next for us. I wonder why Moses didn't just quit right then. God, I just you, you, pick, you picked the wrong man. First thing I do, failure. Now I've got them all against me. What was it that kept Moses to keep going? Let me suggest a character trait of Moses, a character trait that I find in him as a leader that I try, I would be good to model myself after because I'm trying to be, in a way, the leader that Moses is. Numbers chapter 12, verse, I can't read my writing, 2 or 3, says Moses was a very humble man, humblest man on the face of the earth. Why is that such a good character trait for a leader, do you reckon? I think the leader has to recognize that it's not about him. It's about the work. If you remember several years later, Samuel goes to God and tells him how the Israelites demand a king. And God's response to Samuel was, in paraphrase, Samuel, don't take it personally. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. I only hope that I can find a way to mimic, to copy some of Moses' humility because I think it served him well as a leader. So, the plagues come along. They walk out of Egypt. They're going out into the wilderness. They get to the Red Sea. And trouble again. Exodus chapter 5. I'm sorry, Exodus chapter 14. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. That's Exodus 14 at the Red Sea. Of course, God saw them through. Exodus 15, the very next chapter. Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went into the desert of Shur. For three days they traveled in the desert without finding water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink its water because it was bitter. That's why it's called Marah. So the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What are we to drink? Exodus 16, the very next chapter. The whole Israelite community set out from Elam and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month, after they'd come out of Egypt. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted, but you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Exodus chapter 17, the very next chapter. 
The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. Moses replied, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. They said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, what am I to do with these people? They're almost ready to stone me. What was it that kept Moses going? Numbers chapter 11. The Israelites started wailing and said, if only we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost. Also the cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, and garlic. But now we've lost our appetite. We never see anything but this manna. Moses heard the people of every family wailing at the entrance to their tents. The Lord became exceedingly angry, and Moses was troubled. Why have you brought this trouble on your servant, Moses said to God. What have I done to displease you that you put the burden of all these people on me? Did I conceive all these people? Did I give them birth? Why do you tell me to carry them in my arms as a nurse carries an infant to the land you promised on oath to their ancestors? Verse 15, if this is how you're going to treat me, this is Moses talking to God, if this is how you're going to treat me, please, go ahead and kill me. If I have found favor in your eyes, and do not let me face my own ruin. Numbers chapter 12, the very next chapter. Miriam and Aaron begin to talk against Moses. Miriam and Aaron, his own brother and sister. Has the Lord spoken only through Moses? Hasn't he also spoken through us? Numbers chapter 14, they get to the very edge of the promised land. That night, all the members of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole assembly said to them, If only we had died in Egypt or in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, We should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. The Bible says Moses responded by falling face down. I think that's a cue of Moses' humility. Number 16, Korah, along with certain Reubenites, Dathan and Abiram and On, became insolent, rose up against Moses. With them were 250 Israelite men, well-known community leaders, who had been appointed members of the council. They came as a group to Moses and Aaron and said to them, You have gone too far. The whole community is holy, every one of them, and the Lord is with them. Why then do you set yourselves above the Lord's assembly? When Moses heard this, he fell face down. Numbers chapter 20. There was no water for the community. The people gathered in opposition to Moses and Aaron. They quarreled with Moses. If only we had died with our brothers fell dead before the Lord. Why did you bring this community into the wilderness that we and our livestock should die here? Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to this terrible place? 
Verse 6, Moses and Aaron went from the assembly to the entrance to the tent of the meeting, and guess what they did? Fell face down. Moses is going to let God handle this problem. Moses takes the staff. God tells him to speak to the rock. Instead, Moses raises his arm and strikes the rock twice with his staff. And the Lord told Moses, because you did not trust in me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into the land I give them. How did Moses go on as long as he did with these people? Why did he not just go back up to God with his staff and say, here, you can have, I'm going back to Egypt. You can have them. But Moses stayed faithful to his commitment. Difficult as it was. And then in Numbers 21, the story about the bronze snake. The people grew impatient. They spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? How many times are they going to ask him this question? There's no bread. There's no water. We detest this miserable food. So God sent the snakes in there. And then they had to appeal to Moses to pray on their behalf for their deliverance. was a great challenge for Moses to lead these people all the way from Egypt to the Promised Land. What's difficult for me to accept is the fact that Moses' greatest challenge was not the mighty arm and armies of the king of Egypt. His greatest obstacle was not the, the roughness of the desert conditions. His greatest challenge was not those tribes surrounding them that might attack them. Moses' greatest challenge in leading God's people to where they needed to go was the very people he was trying to lead. Shame on them. Shame on them for that. Richard, you recounted last week I don't, I, 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 you, all the churches that you went to and, and, and were experienced. I went back all the way to the womb in my mind. And I came up with 14 churches that I've uh, been a part of, worshipped at, my family, so on and so forth over the years. And so just ballparking it, that's probably, give or take, 100 elders. A hundred men, most of whom I couldn't tell you their names or their faces. Men unknown to me. But men that were committed to lead that body of believers. Men that I don't know that prayed for my safe birth. Men that prayed for safe travels for my family from place to place to place. Men that prayed when I was a kid for the better part of three years spent in hospitals taking care of problems I had. Men that prayed when my parents' marriage was falling apart. Men that prayed when my brother was diagnosed with cancer and then prayed for the comfort of the family two years later when he died. Men who prayed for a good marriage for me and and safe 
health for my children. I'll never know the time that those men spent away from their families, away from what they did, the sacrifices they made on my behalf. I'll never know. But what breaks my heart is to know that those same men who did all that for me and I never even knew it, those same men probably had to deal with somebody in their church body who didn't like the preacher or thought they sang too many songs or didn't know why we were giving any money to this organization. Shame on them. Shame on them for that. All right, let's talk about something positive now. At the end of Moses' life, God tells him to climb up Mount Nebo and look off so he can see that wonderful land that's been promised to his children. You know, I always had read that in the past thinking how bittersweet that was. You know, that God got him, that Moses got him this close, did all that work, put up with all that, and he gets right there. And it's almost like, man, isn't it even worse to look and see it and not be able to go over there? But I think it validated it for Moses. I think, I think it finished the story for Moses. What had been faith had become sight. And even though he wasn't able to go over there, I think it was a good turn of God to at least let him see it. And when you think about it, where did Moses go instead? He went to the real promised land. I mean, really? He's going to exchange going across that river for going across the river? I don't feel too sorry for Moses. The elders have sat out on this project of casting a vision for this church. We established the year 2023. I'll be frank with you. Lord willing that 2023 comes, not all of us are going to see 2023. And I'm including myself in that. You may think, gee, you're a, you're a young old fellow, but you know, I lost one brother at 19 and one at 50, so there's no guarantees for any of us. But that does not tarnish my excitement for the vision of what's going to happen. Whether some of us don't see that day, it doesn't mean that we don't work towards that day. And I'm excited for when that day comes. And even if I'm not there, to know that somebody is going to benefit from what this church has done in saying, here's where we want our people to go. And some of y'all in here are going to cross that river and are going to see that land. And like I said, don't feel sorry for Moses. Don't feel sorry for those of us that don't see 2024 either. Because I told you about my favorite Bible verse, Psalm 42, 2. My soul thirsts for God, 
for the living God? When can I go and meet with God? To me, that doesn't just have earthly applications. When can I go and meet with God? I was up in Stillwater, Oklahoma a couple weeks ago. In fact, that's where I got this fancy cup. Had to tie that in. And in Stillwater, Oklahoma, they've got something called the Wrestling Hall of Fame. Who knew? Now, not the, you know, not the guys with the painted faces jumping off the top of the ropes, but the real wrestling, you know what I mean? Real wrestling. And there is a tradition, kind of, in wrestling. When a competitor fights in what he knows is going to be his final contest, his final match, when he completes the match, he takes off his shoes and he leaves them on the mat. And that tells everybody, I've left it all. I'm done. Y'all are looking at my shoes, aren't you? I'm not going to leave my shoes here. I'm not done wrestling yet. I'll let God make that decision. Maybe himself, maybe speaking through his people. I'll let him make that decision for me. It is a blessing to be an elder at this church. Just as I can echo what Richard said, I love this church. And I love that this church loves God. And I love that this church loves me and my family. We're not going to close with the invitation song. We're not going to close with a prayer. But what I'm going to ask each of you all to do, if you would, if you're comfortable, to stand up. And if there's somebody next to you that you don't feel too uncomfortable with, to grab their hand. Go ahead. That was a cue. Stand up. I don't have a lot of practice at this, but I want to offer a blessing to you all, okay? Heavenly Father, all glory and praise and honor be unto you. Always, may always say and do before you and about you. Father, I pray a blessing upon this body of believers, as imperfect and as sinful as we are. That thanks be to Jesus Christ, who makes us perfect in your sight. Father, may we join together in unity and in love, in courage and in patience to go forth to show that love to this world. And that in all things, once again, Father, your name be held up and be glorified. Father, bless each one here as we struggle to live this life for you. Father, we've seen the struggles of the words of your holy book. And we know that if those that have gone before us can be victorious, that the victory is ours too. I pray this blessing upon each one here. In Jesus' name, amen. Go with God.